Olivia understands Christmas. Do you? Here's the big idea with Christmas. If you understand Christmas, it changes your life. Do you see what Olivia said in that video? She had this moment, it's my favorite moment, where she says, you know what? Uh, it was that day that I was born again. Here's what I want you to know. Christmas 2023, Jesus Christ was born so that you could be born again. Jesus Christ died so that you could have eternal life. And that's what we hope, we're gonna get there in a minute. That's what we hope to talk about with the Christmas story today. But before we talk about today, we gotta talk about last week. Guys, we had an incredible grand opening and launch of this facility. Wasn't it awesome? <clears throat> All right, look. We, we had over 3,200 people on campus last week. Thank you for praying. Thank you for inviting. Thank you for coming in the rain. And if you were at the five o'clock service and you were in the parking team, thank you for serving in the rain. It was incredible. Thank you, guys. Guys, look, look, you heard the story. This is how this works. This is how this works here. If you're new, let me tell you how this works. The gospel moves forward one relationship at a time. That was Abby and Olivia. But the gospel also moves forward not just one relationship at a time, but one room at a time. Did you get that? Hey, I invited her to my house, and then I invited her to my community group, and then I invited her to church. Guys, the reason we're celebrating this room is because we believe so much life change is going to happen in this room because of all of the relationships that you and I have outside of this room. By the way, if you're new, and, and we've got so many new people, okay? It's a great time to be new. It's a great time to be new in our church. If you're new, I wanna tell you about the next room, okay? We don't have 10 ways. We don't even have two ways. We have one way to get connected here. The next room is the Weekender. It's your on-ramp to discipleship in the life of our church, okay? Look, up to you, okay? If you wanna remain kind of anonymous and in the crowd, totally up to you. We would love it if you would move from the crowd to connected and committed, from saying that church to saying my church, and the only way you can do that is by going through our Weekender. Guys, it's gonna be our first Weekender. What a great Weekender to come to. The first Weekender in our new building. We've already got like 50 people signed up, okay? So you're not gonna be the only one. Hope you'll come. Finally, guys, it's Christmas Eve, and for many of you, that's just like real exciting. Gifts are wrapped, and you got the new house or the new spouse or you know whatever, and you, you, you know, the, the, <laughs> your first spouse, I don't know, okay, doesn't matter. <laughs> I'm just saying, for a lot of you, things are going well. That's what I was trying to say. Um, <clears throat> um, but for at Christmas, for a lot of people, things are not going well. And it's not a joyful, but it's a painful time of year because it's the first Christmas without or it's another Christmas without. And so, we're, look, I'm just going to tell you what the Bible says, which is this. Where the I ideal is lacking, and that's true for some of you today, where the I ideal is lacking, the grace of God is abounding. And part of the message of Christmas is as God is with us. So I just want to pray for those who uniquely need some comfort in this time, and then we'll dive into our Christmas message. Let's pray. Lord, I pray in, in a room like this, a church like ours, there's going to be people who are just in pain. And Christmas is a reminder that they're still single, that they're still infertile, and that grandpa is not here this year. And sometimes it's very hard when everybody else is celebrating and giving gifts and having parties. It, so there's certain people who just feel like, does anybody understand that this is the most difficult time of the year for me? So I pray that we'd be a church that um, is for everybody. And, and we, we walk with people in the unique seasons and stages of their life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to start out. My Christmas message with some bad news. Are you ready for some bad news? Here's some bad news. You... And that means me too, I guess. But you live in the greatest decline of Christianity in the history of this nation. Can you believe it? This nation is 250 years old. That's a long time. 
And you and I, it's happening on our watch. We live in the greatest decline of Christianity in the history of our nation. Here's what that means. That means that you and I live in the most biblically illiterate time in American history, which is strange. Because we have podcasts and iPhones in our back pocket and YouTube channels and, and we're, you know, overly educated and all of that and we don't know our Bibles. We certainly don't know what Easter or Christmas is about. Where do we learn what Christmas is about? The average American learns what Christmas is about by singing Christmas songs. What's your favorite Christmas song? How about Mary, did you know? Let me give you the answer to that. Yes. The answer to that song is yes. Luke chapter two. Mary, did you know? Very short answer. Yes. An angel told me. Uh, how about Silent Night? Okay. How about mom? Every mom in here goes, when a baby is born in a barn, it is not a silent night. Okay. You can't learn it only from Christmas songs, although they're great, they teach us a lot. Some people learn it from nativity scenes. Have you driven by Wake Baptist Hospital? Even Wake Baptist Hospital has a nativity scene outside. But did you know that the nativity scene is not really fully biblical? The wise men, we'll see, they do not get to see Jesus until he's a child, it's described, probably several months at least later. So if you wanna be biblical, when you go home today, you take those wise men out of your nativity scene. You put them in another room and you say, we're bringing these back in June. We're gonna be biblical, okay? <laughs> Guys, here's what I wanna do this morning on Christmas Eve. I wanna try to show you something you've never seen and something you always have seen. How do you do that? How do you show somebody something new and something they've always known? It's kinda like the FedEx symbol. You ever see the FedEx symbol? I got a picture of it behind me. The FedEx, I know, you all know this already, but you remember that time, that first moment when you realized there was an arrow in between the E and the X? Go, oh, isn't that good, yes. Okay, now, if you've, never, if you've seen that, have you seen the teaspoon in the little E at the bottom? Do you see that? Now you'll never not see that. There you go, put that up. <laughs> Here's what I wanna tell you guys. It, it's, once you see it, you can't unsee it, but sometimes, Somebody else has to point it out to you. Guys, we're, turn to Matthew chapter two. We're doing a familiar story. It doesn't get any more familiar than a teenage girl named Mary. Now, this story is miraculous, but to you and me, it's just like, well, we've heard it so many times. It's like saying the Pledge of Allegiance, right? Well, she's 14 or she's 15. <clears throat> Maybe she's 16. She gets pregnant even though she's a virgin, and then she says what you and I would say, which as a teenager, you would say probably this, right? God, I'm not ready to raise God. Right, that's what Mary basically says. And then, you know, chapter one of Matthew, we're not gonna go there today, maybe that'll be next year's message. Chapter one of Matthew really has to do with how Jesus came. It's, it's, you know, the miraculous birth. It's the conversations between Joseph and Mary. It's the conversations with Mary and the angel. It's all of that. It's really exciting. That's Matthew one. Matthew two is not how Jesus came, but how people are to respond or how they did respond. Matthew one, how Jesus came. We're not talking about that today. Matthew 2, how will you respond? There's only three ways to respond. And by the way, Jesus looms too large in history for you not to respond to him. He's worshiped by roughly a billion people on earth. No one's had more books written about him or songs sung to him or paintings drawn of him than the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Bible itself is the most read book. Um, it's the most sold book. It's the most translated book. And believe it or not, it's the most stolen book. Who is stealing the Bible, Okay. If you need a Bible, we'll give you one afterwards. You just talk to us. There's another option, okay? Um, <clears throat> there's three ways people respond to Jesus. Anger, apathy, and adoration. That's it. It looks different. We'll show you. But either anger like Herod, apathy like the religious leaders of the day, or adoration 
like the wise men or the magi. If you'll turn with me to Matthew 2, verse 1. <clears throat> Here's what it says. Now, after Jesus was born, I told you Matthew 1 is how he was born. Matthew 2 is how people respond. In Bethlehem of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, here it is, wise men, or some translations say magi, these were scholars who studied the stars. That's what they were. Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. Okay, so let's stop for a second, because I know on Christmas Eve, people are here that aren't normally here, and let me just say we're glad you're here, which means you may be even less familiar with the Bible than the average person. Let me, that's fine. So when you read, when I read that verse of the Bible, you go, this is strange. What's up with like all of these names and places and what, Jerusalem and, you know, Bethlehem and Herod and wise men and east and direction? I mean, what's going on? Here's what I want you to know. The Christian faith is based on historical events. I don't know what you think the Christian faith is based on. Some of you might think the Christian faith is fable and fiction and fairy tale and myth and superstition. It's none of that. It, Christianity is based on historical events, the virgin birth, the substitutionary death of Christ, before that his sinless life, the, his resurrection from the dead. But it's what do those events mean? Those events in of themselves, they need to be explained. And then they need to be personally experienced like they were in the story of Olivia. Well, all this sets up the story of Jesus coming into the world. Look, look what it says in verse one. We'll continue here. It says, or sorry, verse two, saying, remember these wise men, they come to Herod the king, saying, where is he who is born king of the Jews? That's his title. For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Okay, here's the message of Christmas, okay? We could talk about it different ways. We could say God with us, Emmanuel. That's a great message of Christmas. The message of Christmas from our text today is this. Jesus is king and you are not. We like the first part. Oh, that sounds good, right? No, and you are not. That's the second part. In fact, we'll see this. Herod got it. Do you get it? A king meets a king. Welcome to Christmas. Christmas is the confrontation of two kingdoms. And we'll see what happens in a moment here. But I want you to notice, first of all, we're talking about a king and a kingdom. The Lord Jesus Christ, it says, was born a king. Guys, we are obsessed with kingdoms and empires. Every guy like loves to watch a good Netflix show about like an empire and a kingdom, okay? Do you remember recently, this was not that long ago, there was something on social media, you know how things go viral, and they were, they were surprised, particularly women were surprised. They were asking the question, how much do men think about the Roman Empire? And you know what the answer is, all the time! It's the Roman Empire. Women, okay, I, I can't speak for all women. Okay, I can't speak for any women, but I'm gonna try for a second. <clears throat> women love a good royal wedding. When Kate, this was years ago now, decades ago maybe, but when Kate and William got married, we're just fascinated by royalty. How's it work, right? Here we are in America looking over in England, like, how's it work? Queen Elizabeth dies and there's Prince Charles, what's he, okay. Okay, he's dressed like Captain Crunch, okay. <laughs> okay, you know, Prince Charles becomes, we just love it, we love it. Uh, we just can't, we don't understand it, it's okay. So here's the thing about kingdoms. So you read your Bible, you realize almost every king in the Bible, let me just summarize it, all the kings in the Bible are bad, basically. You're like, bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, jo Josiah, good king. A bad king, bad king, bad king, bad king, King David. Okay, I mean, yeah. it, that's what, it, and then you read history, it's worse. 
Have you read, you know, it's like, just history is horrible. It's like almost all bad kings. That's because, who, I don't know who first said it, right? Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And even today, you know, if anyone's still acting like a real king, you know, they're probably not a great person. Jesus comes, and we can see the story of Easter as he comes. How he came tells you a little bit about the kind of king he is. He's a humble king, and his first throne is a manger. And, but did you see this? It says that he was born king. Let me just clarify. It, it, Jesus did not become king. Well, how does this work? So let's think. We're going to do deep theology just for a few minutes. I know it's Christmas Eve, and you all want to you know, get home soon. We're going to do deep theology just for a minute. Uh, here's how this works. Jesus was born a king. He didn't need to become a king because he always existed as king. This is, Jesus is the second, I know, it's, it hurts my head, okay? And there's a miraculous and mysterious nature to it. But Jesus Christ has always existed. So at Christmas, a new person does not need to be created. The son of God needs to be born. That's Christmas. A new person does not need to be created Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, needs to be born in some miraculous way, that we, in a mysterious way that we don't fully understand, at the incarnation, which incarnate, okay, in flesh. It just means that for the first time, humanity and divinity are interlocked. It's a beautiful picture. But not everybody's excited about it. Okay, look, let me show you what Herod does. Verse three. Then Herod, the king, who, by the way, guess what his nickname was, or his title for himself, King of the Jews. He doesn't like it when somebody else is called King of the Jews. When Herod, the king, heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with you. If you understand the Christmas message for the first time, you will be troubled. Because if you really understand, look, Christianity, let me just be clear. Again, a lot of us maybe are new and don't understand this. Christianity is not about going to church. Right? The goal of this service is not to get you to come back and go to our church, please. Here, let me tell you the purpose of Christianity. For you to submit your entire life and surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what Christianity is. That's Christianity, which is very different, very different than come back to church next week, please. Please give and connect it. What, I mean, no, I'm not doing that. This is about surrendering your entire life to the Lordship of Christ. Okay, so we got that. So obviously this troubles Herod because Herod realizes there's a king that confronts my kingship. Okay, I think the reason that most people don't become Christians is not because like they just can't get there with the creation evolution argument. Like I don't think it's like they're just real, they've read, they've read everything about the empty tomb and it's just unconvincing to them. I think at the end of the day, they want to be the king of their own lives, and Christianity uh, attacks their narcissism. I don't know if many people are as honest as Dr. Thomas Nagel is, who he is a professor. Here's what he said. He said this, I want atheism to be true. Yikes. And it made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. I hope that my belief is right. I hope there is no God. Okay, he takes it one step forward. Look at this. I don't want there to be a God. Yikes. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that my cosmic authority problem is not rare. 
No, Dr. Nagel, I don't think it's rare. But I don't think it's often communicated as honestly as you just did. The message of Christmas is Jesus is king. The shortest statement of faith in the Bible, and by the way, it took us a while to figure this out. We looked around and go, what's the shortest statement of like, what does it mean to believe? Like, what do you say? Like, what is, and so the shortest statement of faith that a Christian can say is, is three words. And it's found in certain places in the Bible. It's this, Jesus is Lord. That is the statement of belief. When come from the heart, that's what a believer says. Well, that's very similar to Jesus is king. It's basically synonymous. And what is the definition of sin? The definition of sin is not simply breaking God's commands. Now listen, when you break God's commands, you also break God's heart, and you'll break yourself across time. That's what will happen. Those three things happen together. You break the command, you break God's heart, you break yourself. Watch somebody for years who breaks God's command. They break themselves. Anyway, that's not the root of sin. The root of sin is I wanna be king. I wanna be the Lord of my life. I have an authority problem, a cosmic authority problem. Look what Herod does. Herod does this in verse 16. If we drop down to the end of the story, you know, it says that Herod, because he couldn't get Jesus, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious, and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or younger according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Okay, this is the, in all of the accounts, in all of the Christmas accounts that you put together in the Bible, this is the saddest of it, obviously. He, he can't figure out Jesus. He can't control Jesus, so he tries to kill Jesus. And so he ends up going to this area and having all the kids under two years old killed. Um, here's what we're seeing. He is trying to control Jesus to get what he wants. Now, some of us, we don't do this. Well, none of us do it in an extreme manner like that. Sometimes we just do it by trying to manipulate Jesus through our prayers. Right? I mean, nothing wrong with praying. Seek God. Let your requests be made known to God. But Jesus Christ will not give us our idols. I want to show you one other thing Herod does. This is very interesting. Look at verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. Okay, do you see what Herod does? Herod does what many of us can be tempted to do. Herod basically says, all right, get, get Jesus over here and uh, bring him to me, and, and then I'll worship him too. Here's what he, he does. He says he wants Jesus, but he really wants something else. Like, he's the first, in the Bible, he's the first false worshiper of Jesus. He shows up to church, and everyone's excited. They're like, Herod's here. I hope he ties, you know? This is awesome. I can't believe the king showed up to church. Meanwhile, he doesn't want Jesus. He says he wants Jesus, but he wants something else. Jesus for him is a means to an end. How many for us, how many of us, Jesus is a means to some other end. For some people, it's financial stability and financial security, and they never prayed to receive Jesus into their heart, but they were prayed to receive Dave Ramsey, okay? Have you met this person? Some people, it's like, dude, the world's crazy. It's crazy, and I'm worried about my kids. And I'm worried about how crazy what's on TV and you know, it's, okay, let's get him in church. Jesus is a means to putting my family together. By the way, you never know what Jesus is a means to that you're not getting until you don't get it. I, you know, have you ever seen these people nowadays? Very popular people doing this. They're deconstructing their faith. And I've read what they write. It's all the same things. Jesus didn't give me what I wanted. 
It's like, oh, Jesus was a means to another end. I'll tell you what it is for some of you in here. Some people, Jesus is the means to heaven and forgiveness, but you don't really want Jesus. Like if you die and you get to heaven and you're playing golf and you're eating with your friends and you're hanging with your family and Jesus isn't there, you wouldn't care. Jesus does not want to be a means to an end. He is the end in himself. Anger is the first response. Apathy is the second. Turn to me and look at verse three again. <clears throat> when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all the Jerusalem with him and assembling all, all of them. I don't know how many that is, a couple dozen. All the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Okay, want you to see the context, okay? The second response that's wrong is the response of religious leaders, which often re represent religious people, and it's apathy. Okay, here's what happens. Herod's like, okay, I heard about this Messiah, this Christ, whatever his name is, and he's the king of the Jews, and, and I don't know a lot of Bible, so get all the Bible guys in here. So they get all the Bible guys in here. So, all right, Bible guys, get over here. Okay, I don't know if you know this, but they, there's a star, and the, no, we know exactly what this is. This is the Messiah, and then they quote an obscure book that maybe some of you've never even read, Micah. They're able to quote an obscure book, minor prophet, obscure passage, Micah 5.2. Okay, here's what it is, guys. Uh, he's going to be born here, and give him all the information. Now, here's the sad thing. When we follow the story later, and all of the wise men end up going to visit Jesus, guess who doesn't come? None of the scribes and none of the priests. They have no affection. They have no heart for Christ. They have no desire to be with him. And this is my fear. In a city like Winston-Salem with 516 churches, where almost everybody I've ever met has been in Sunday school or youth group or mom and dad sent me to private Christian school when I was in middle school, you know, whatever it is. By the way, I mean, you know, and people become so familiar with the word of God and with the things of God and with the people of God and with their great family and they take it for granted. You know, I've had the opportunity many times to uh, speak in chapel at Christian high schools and middle schools all over the state. And I don't like doing it because it's, a, it's, it's some of the hardest rooms to speak into because you're like, I don't think this is the strangest environment I have ever been in. I think everybody in this school has just been inoculated with just enough Christianity. I, I mean, I know when this is a back and forth thing, I know you think this is a monologue. This is a back and forth. I know I can feel how you're responding, what you're, I can feel different. I'm telling you, whenever I speak in most of these Christian schools, it's like, there's nothing there. Or there's mostly nothing there. And I'm not sure how it works. Because everybody's got the right answer. You could call Johnny, pray for us at the end. And Johnny would be like, I know how to pray. I, I know the words. And if you get caught doing something, you just use the Christian lingo. I'm struggling. You ain't struggling. Roll the film. He dove into that sin. There ain't no struggling. We know all the lingo, okay? It's so unbelievably dangerous. You know this. And I don't know what to do about it. I've got three kids myself. They know all the answers to all the questions, okay? Almost all their friends are Christians. I don't know. They've been, you know, they've been in kids' ministry forever. Goldfish and gospel galore, you know? It's just like, 
I, I don't know what to do about it, because it's such a blessing. There's such a blessing to be, I mean, one of the greatest gifts outside of salvation is being given a great church and a great Christian family. But you can start getting the right answer and not the real answer. It's just, it's hard. You know how it is if you've seen this. Um, and so what happens is they, they have all the right knowledge in their head, but nothing in their heart. It, the, it can't make the 12, you know, the long, they say the longest distance to travel, though it's so short, is the 12 inches between a person's head and their heart. When a person comes to Christ, all of them should come to Christ. Their head, in fact, all of them does when a person really comes to Christ. Conversion is not intellectual assent to Bible facts. Conversion is my head, my heart, my hands come to Christ. Conversion is my mind, my heart, my emotions come to Christ. Too often in churches like ours, which really emphasizes Bible teaching, and I love it, right? Here we are, 45, 50 minutes a week, half the service. It's like just Bible teaching. Um, you may even know words like expositional preaching, praise the Lord. You, know, you even know what you're looking for. The problem is churches like ours, the temptation is to have a really big head and really small hands and a Grinch-sized heart. Two sizes, too small. What happens that conversion is, is conversion, becoming a Christian, she used the phrase born again in the video, that's a biblical phrase, born from above, made spiritually alive, being made a new creation. These are all like supernatural terms. When that happens, you get new affections. See, Christianity is not about church attendance or religious activity, but new affections. Let me explain this. Uh, so Jonathan Edwards, I learned a lot from Jonathan Edwards. He was a pastor and theologian in the 1700s. Many consider him the greatest theologian that America's ever produced. Okay, so imagine this. He said that underneath your emotions, so here's your emotions, okay, and some of you are like, I, I, I cry, I, you know, I get angry, I, I, you, know, you don't even know why you feel how you feel, okay? That's because underneath your emotions are your affections. And your affections are really simple. They're the deepest part of you, and they're what you love and what you hate. The problem with your affections is you can't change them. How many of you have been somewhere before like, I hate that I love him? <laughs> How much addiction and secret sin is, I hate that I love this? And I don't know what to do about loving this so much when it's something I should be hating. When you come to Christ, what you love and what you hate changes and transforms. Look, if you don't know this, you'll, you'll learn this soon. I'm a recovering Catholic, Okay. Yes. I was a card-carrying Catholic up until about eighth or ninth grade. Uh, I, I did the confirmation in the First Holy Communion, and if you're here and you're Catholic, you can call me Father Kyle, and we can, we can talk afterwards. But, but basically, here's what happened with me. I, I, when, I can't remember what age it was. They give you a Bible. I, I, think it's, I think it's confirmation, eighth grade. And I had zero desire to read the Bible. But as soon as I was a Christian which happened in March of 2001 for me. I had an in, insatiable appetite to know God's word. I remember being a Christian, and I'm in Spanish three class, which, you know, I'm, I'm sitting there, and I'm looking around the room. I can still remember this. And I'm looking at my classmates in my public high school in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And I'm like, who's going to heaven in this room, and who's going to hell in this room? I never cared about the spiritual condition of people until I became a Christian. I began to be convicted about sin in my life. I began to have a special love for the local church. The problem with the 
scribes and the priests is they had all of the head knowledge, but they didn't have the heart knowledge. The key to Christianity is understanding that real Christians want to be with Jesus. That's how you can tell who's the real Christian. The scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the priests, they didn't want to be with Jesus. The wise men, we'll see in a minute, they wanted to be with Jesus. Here's what you need to know. Religion, or sorry, Christianity is not moralism. I just want to explain what Christian. So for some of you, I won't see you until Easter, so this is my one chance, okay? <laughs> like, he always talks about the same things, the birth of Christ and the resurrection. Um, <laughs> I, some of you, I only get twice a year, so here, I want to explain that, that Christianity is not moralism. So there's the moralism of the conservatives and the moralism of the liberals. It's different, but it's, it's all that... You know, Christianity is, it's, you know, Christianity is not about being a good person. On the conservative side, they say, you know, have your family values and vote this certain way and all this. On the left, they say shop at Whole Foods. They say reduce, reuse, recycle, drive an electric car, something like that. Everyone has their, if I do this, right? If I do this, I'm a good person. Can Watch me virtue signal to you right now. Okay, that's what people do. Christianity is not religion, okay? Religion is about me and Christianity is about Jesus. And religion is about what I do and Christianity is about what Jesus has done. And religion is about the external and Christianity is about the internal. And religion says there's good people and there's bad people and Christianity says there's bad people and there's Jesus. And so I, I want you to understand this at Christmas that Christianity is not religion. It's about a relationship with the Lord. Let's look at the wise men. They're the good example here. It will turn with me to the final example, and we get two negative examples and one positive. In verses five and six, we'll read one more time, the word of God that's given to Herod. <clears throat> they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So I wanted to take us back for a second to go, what leads the wise men to worship? Answer the word of God. Our worship has to start with a right understanding and a right response to God's word. The problem with the apathetic priests and scribes is they do not respond rightly to God's word. Now, here's what I want you to also understand as Christians. We believe that God wrote a book. We believe in revelation, not speculation. If you, I get it. If you're not a Christian, then all you have is speculation. Like, I don't know what happens when I die. And I don't know the purpose of life. And I don't know what God's like. I just want you to know at Two Cities Church, we are not guessing what God is like. God has revealed himself, and that's what we're trying to explain. So they, the word of God, or worship, starts with responding rightly to God's word. How do you respond rightly to God's word? Well, all of you respond, responds appropriately to all that God has said. You, you, you respond first, and we're trying to build here a response culture in our church where we just respond. God says something, and we do something. So the first two ways you respond is by praying and obeying, right? Like, I, I don't know, some of you have some goals for the new year and New Year's resolutions, and some of you, it's going to be read the Bible in a year or read the New Testament in a year or, I, I don't know, have a, whatever you call it, quiet time, devotional personal time of worship every day, I can give you just a little, if you're not having a great time with your devotional life, and I'll give you a, just a little mini hack real quick. If you want your devotional life to be twice as meaningful overnight, here's all you do. 
next time you've read a part of the Bible and you've understood it, you just go, God, what would you like me to do about this? That's it. That's, that's God. I, I, I'm not just reading this to increase my knowledge. I'm reading this to change my life. So God, what would you like me to do based on what you've just revealed to me? That's pray and obey. And by the way, what's gonna happen is immediately you're going to feel like you're gonna basically be told to do something you don't wanna do. That's how you'll know it's God. <laughs> like, I don't wanna do that. That's how you know it's God, okay? We sing, that's another way we respond. We're gonna sing, we sing at the beginning, we sing at the end. Partly it's like, it's like we don't know what else to do. It's like, what, what do you do when God has spoken and revealed himself in his word and convict? You just stand and you sing in response. And we'll see in a second, they bring. But I want you to see the key to their worship is verse 10. Their key, the key to their worship is verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Okay? It's fourfold joy. Four different phrases in that one verse for joy. You understand that joy is the exact opposite of apathy. A couple years ago, actually, it's been a long time now, it was probably... It's weird for me to say something like it's been 20 years, but 20 years ago, I was a freshman in college, okay? And when I was a freshman, I was a brand new believer, and I was introduced to a website called desiringgod.org, and I was introduced to that through a ministry and a pastor named John Piper. Maybe you've heard of him. Anyway, he was very, very famous for a season, influencing hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of people. And what he taught, if I could summarize his key teaching in a phrase, he's taught this. God is most glorified in you when you're most satisfied in him. I have to unpack that because people, what does it mean to glorify God, right? Because every once in a while, like even like a dad, he means well and he's trying to be Christian and so he tells his son, glorify God on that soccer field and the kid's like, I, I, okay. I mean, I'm gonna play soccer. What do you mean glorify God on the soccer field, you know? Glorify God literally means Make him look great. So now you know, now, now the adventure of your life will be to figure out how to do that based on your temperament, your relationship, your job, your calling. Okay, that's great. I want to make God look great. Here's another way to say it. I want to make the invisible God visible through how I live my life. Wow, that's something to get up for every day. Now, how do you do that? John Piper's answer is you enjoy God. The number one way you make God look great is by enjoying him. In fact, that's how you make any person look great. For example, say some guy in our church, let's call him Jimmy. Some guy in our church, he's, he's got, you know, it's the new year, and he, and he wants to be a better husband than he is, okay? And he knows, he's read about it, he knows he needs to do date nights and all this kind of stuff. So he decides, I'm going to surprise my wife in early January, and we're going to do a date night. He gets dressed up, he buys the flowers and the chocolates and all that kind of good stuff. And he surprises his wife. She doesn't see it coming. He, and he knows her favorite restaurant. He takes her there. And it's going very, very well. Appetizer and food and drink and, and dessert comes. And she's just overwhelmed. And she says, oh, Jimmy. She said, why'd you? We never do this. Why'd you do this? Imagine if his response is, because this is the right thing to do. He'll be sleeping on the couch if that's what he says. Because I have to. Because I read somewhere that this is what husbands do. What does she want to hear? She wants to hear some version of this. Well, because nothing makes me happier than spending special time with you. 
And I wanted to prioritize that in the new year. If he says that, she's going to go, oh, Jimmy. <laughs> so, so many of us, our answer to why we do things when it comes to Christian faith is duty, not delight. We have the I have to, not I get to mentality. We want, we want to have here the I get to pray. I get to read my Bible. I get to share my faith. I get to give. I get to invite. I get to serve. The I get to. I don't know if you've seen this recently, but Joe Rogan, you should all know who Joe Rogan is. He's the, num I mean, he's the number one interviewer in human history. No one has more people watch and listen to his interviews than anybody else in human history by a long shot. Okay, this guy's super duper famous. Anyway, Joe Rogan just interviewed Hulk Hogan. Say that five times. Joe Rogan interviewed Hulk Hogan. There you go. And, uh, and, and a friend of mine sent me the clip, and Hulk Hogan is on there, and uh, he says, guys, he's talking to Joe, and you know, it's very casual, and he says, Joe, I gotta tell you about my church. I love my church. And Joe Rogan, go watch this. Joe Rogan says, don't, don't, say, don't say the name of your church on the podcast, because if you do, everyone's gonna come to your church. He says, I want everyone to come to my church. <laughs> he says, Joe, I plug in at church, and I don't plug out. And you can tell, he's talking about how much he enjoys his church, enjoys following Christ, enjoys being a Christian. And Joe Rogan is looking at him the way a cow looks at a new gate. <laughs> like, I, I've, I've never heard anyone ever say anything positive about the church. That's, God is most glorified in you when you are most satisfied in him. Worship is joyful. Worship is humble. Look here. They bow down to a child. Verse 11, and going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They see humility that's also actually connected to posture. By the way, if you ever see people raise their hands and worship you, what is that about? I remember when I was first time coming to church, I saw someone do I thought, what is wrong with that? Are they stretching in service? <laughs> the reason that you do that, that's a picture of surrender because Christ is king. It's a picture of celebration, and it's also what little kids do when they want to be picked up. So now you know why people do that. And sometimes your body will do something because your soul's feeling it. Sometimes your body will do something and your soul will begin to feel it. There's a posture, they're humble. Why are we humble? Well, humble, humility, by the way, just means seeing yourself rightly. That's all it means. And we're humble for two reasons. One, because we're created. Like, you're finite, I'm finite. We're ignorant, there's so much we don't know, we're going to die, we're unbelievably fragile, okay? It's like, for that reason alone, we should all be just so humble. But then we're humble because we're sinful. When, you know, it's been defined before as, what's a prideful person? A prideful person is somebody who's never met God. That's the definition of a prideful person. Because once you meet God and once you stand at the cross, you have to realize, I'm so sinful that God had to die for me I'm so loved that God was willing to die for me. Both of those humble me. True worship is joyful. True worship is humble. True worship is generous. Look here. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. When you meet Jesus, it turns you into a giver. Listen, you can give without loving. People do that all the time, especially at the end of the year. People give out of guilt, all this other stuff. You, you, can, you can give without loving. It's impossible to love without giving. And when you love Christ, it turns you into a giver and changes how you view everything. They gave three gifts. They gave gold, frankincense, and myrrh. 
Gold because he was a king. Frankincense because that was the, the, what was used in worship. Myrrh had to do with his burial. So it, it, it shadows and points to his life. But as we close this story up and as we've looked at all the different pieces and parts, I just want to say that you can see the three responses. There's the response of anger by the King Herod. There's the response of apathy by the priest. And there's the response of adoration by the wise men. What led the wise men to Christ? The answer is stars and scripture. Did you see that? If you go back to the whole story, what led these wise men to Christ? Stars and scripture. Here's what's interesting, and I've seen this in my own life over the many years of doing ministry, is people come to Christ at Christmas that you would never expect. Do you know that the Magi or the wise men were probably some of the least likely people that you would ever expect to come to Christ? They studied the stars for a living, they were the wrong religion, they were the wrong background, they were wealthy, they were well-educated, they were respected in a different culture, and they're the people who end up coming to Christ at Christmas? Are you kidding me? Not the scribes and not the priests, but these, not King Herod who's confronted with another king? Let me tell you, God might have been using 2023 and some things in your life, I don't know each of your stories, okay? I wonder if God has led you here to this moment through a star. What are stars? Stars are things that are bright that only come out at night. It's like when, when it's very dark, finally you can see a star. And what I've seen in 20 years of ministry is when most people come to faith in Christ, it's when something very dark is happening in their life. And God puts a star in their life. Sometimes her name is Abby. Sometimes it's a parent. Sometimes it's a friend. Sometimes it's being reminded of things in the past. Sometimes it's a guilty conscience. Thank God for that star. Sometimes it's a romantic relationship. Sometimes it's something painful that you're going through and God's like, I'm gonna use whatever star I can to bring you to my son. But then you're gonna need the scripture as well. Uh, here's what I wanna tell you at Christmas Eve. We're about to be done. We're gonna sing. We're gonna head out. I wanna tell you at Christmas, you can change or deepen your response to Jesus. However you came in here this morning, you don't have to leave the same way. You know, when I used to meet with college students, I used to meet with them for lunch, and I used to say, you know what, you can believe before you get back to your dorm. Before you enter your dorm again, you could be a Christian, you could be a different person than you are right now, I wanna tell you, you can believe. Some of you, you need to stop being angry. We know why people are angry. Let me tell you why everyone's angry, because God's not giving me what I want. That's why. People are angry because the world is not working the way they want it to work. I wanna encourage you not to be angry at Christ. Christ has only done good for you. I wanna encourage you to be angry at the sin that's holding you back from Christ. What the sin that holds people back from Christ is the worst part about themselves that they still love. I wanna encourage you against apathy, against the I have to, against the religious mindset, and I wanna encourage you to pray what King David prayed in Psalm 51. He prayed, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. Christmas is a great time to be reminded of all Christ has done for you. And then finally, for a lot of us, we don't necessarily need to change our response to Jesus. We need to deepen it. We need to do what Olivia did, which is we need to read the scriptures. We need to look at the gospels. We need to see Christ, love what we see, and be changed by it. We need to realize afresh the great truth that Jesus Christ was born so that you and I could be born again. Let's pray. Lord, all over this room, I just pray, if anybody is angry, 
because the world's not working the way they want it. Maybe, Lord, that's the star you're using to bring them to yourself. Lord, I pray that you would trouble people in this room the same way you troubled Herod, that your word would not be able to leave their mind and heart this Christmas season, and they would wrestle with you and come to realize Christianity isn't about going to church. It's about submitting and surrendering to the Lordship of Christ. Lord, I pray for the apathetic, and people who just have been around here. I pray particularly, Lord, we just pray for our middle schoolers and our high schoolers who have just been so blessed to grow up in the homes and the churches that they have, Lord, and we pray for them, that you'd wake them up spiritually, that you'd give them deep affections for Christ, Lord. And then as we sing together now, would you deepen our worship and deepen our commitments and deepen our affection as we head in to 2024 together. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.